Hello, and welcome to the Emotion Lab. We're taking a deep dive into what makes the combination of immersive technologies and emotion AI so exciting. This is through a combination of interviews with experts in academia, healthcare, and technology. And I'm your host, Dr. Charles Nduka. So this week, we're joined by Hatija Gunes, who's a reader in Effective Intelligence and Robotics uh, at the University of Cambridge. Welcome, Hatija. Uh, thank you, Charles. Thanks for inviting me and having me over. It'd be great if you could first start off by just giving the introduction uh, to yourself, the work you do, and, uh, and what brings you to the area of emotional intelligence. Uh, as you already said, uh, my current role is uh, a university reader uh, in the Department of Computer Science and Technology at the University of Cambridge, uh, and I mostly work on artificial emotional intelligence, uh, social signal processing, effective computing, and um, try to create these algorithms at the crossroad of computer vision, machine learning, and with applications to well-being as well. Um, so I have uh, several projects in this area um, and PhD students working on different aspects. I also teach the effective computing module uh, as part of the um, advanced computing um, courses and field course in the department. Fantastic. Yeah, I was uh, lucky enough to, to give a lecture on your invitation to your students, which was super interesting for me, especially the questions that they had. Very smart, smart young people. So one of the areas that's fascinating about your work is this uh, focus around social robotics. Uh, tell me about that. How did you get into that? And, and what do you see as being the future applications of this in, in the wider world? Uh, so I've been working in the area of effective computing for quite some time now, I think over 15 years. Uh, and initially, it did not really focus on any, any applications. Specifically, it was more algorithm development. Uh, but during my postdoc at Imperial College, we started working on a collaborative project um, with artificial sensitive uh, listeners. Uh, so there, the application was actually creating these uh, virtual agents that could converse with the user based on just their nonverbal behaviors and keep them engaged for some time. So this is how I started getting involved in the aspects of uh, behavior generation synthesis by artificial characters. So this was the first step. And then uh, when I started my academic career at Queen Mary University of London, uh, EPSRC organized the SAMPIT, so this was a very intense five-day research SAMPIT, uh, very selective, so we apply in advance and they choose from over 200 people, around 35 people, and they take us uh, to this very <laughs> isolated somewhere in the north of England uh, place for five days to really uh, engage these 35 people that probably don't know each other, researchers, academics, and uh, we were supposed to come up with ideas for projects and so on. And uh, from that sample, uh, we actually came up with a project, quite a large one, um, uh, three years, two million project, five different universities involved in the UK. And it was called Being There, Humans and Robots in Public Spaces. So that's how my journey started uh, with robots. Uh, and from then on, I've been working on uh, human-robot interaction and social robotics. Uh, so this is since uh, 2013. So the last seven years, I have had projects in that area as well. So social robotics is, is fascinating. Um, obviously, the Japanese are, are leading the field in, in that area and actually trying to put that into practice. Do you see that as having a role potentially in, in helping with our aging population here in the West? Um, so uh, social robotics have applications in many areas. Uh, indeed, um, in Japan, they have been uh, very uh, fondly actually used and adopted in different settings, uh, including um, for stimulating the senses of elderly in elderly care environments. Um, 
So I would say that it wouldn't be limited just for elderly care. For instance, in the Being There project that I mentioned to you um, as part of this EPSRC uh, funding, uh, what we wanted to uh, also discover or investigate a bit is how we can include people that are usually not able to be part of the public life through, for instance, teleoperated robotics. Uh, so one example would be, uh, for instance, you know, if, if someone is um, disabled and cannot easily go out and go to galleries or even sometimes festivals, um, can we enable them to experience to be there? So this was the name of the project as well. Being there without physically being there, having, for instance, a, a robot uh, um, uh, avatar to represent them. And they could also control this robot around so they could move it around. Around, see through the robot's eyes. If necessary, they could uh, gesture and speak through the robot. So in a way, enabling them to be there in the public space despite uh, the challenges they would face. So this was one example. And in particular, during COVID times, we saw these teleoperated uh, robotics come into play even much more uh, widely. Uh, one example was, for instance, in the UK, I think the Hastings Gallery had this sort of teleoperated robot and people could sign up over the internet and then could access this robot and operate it to go around the gallery to see the paintings and, and different artifacts, you know, close up and so on. But we also saw, for instance, in the graduation ceremonies, because obviously, unfortunately, this year students graduated without physically being there. So in some cases, uh, different universities adopted teleoperated robots and projected the students' faces on the screen of the robot and took some photos uh, with the relevant person like the dean or, or director of the university. Uh, and then also for elderly care, this year we saw during particularly COVID times because, you know, they had to self-isolate, they were uh, the most vulnerable population, and even their loved ones couldn't easily go and see them in person. Again, in some occasions, teleoperated robots were used. Uh, so this is quite uh, um, different or nicer than just you know, having a WhatsApp call or a Skype or Zoom call uh, via a laptop because the robots are physical. So they do have an embodiment. They do have a body sort of face. And, and you, know, you could actually gesture as well if, if the technology is there with them. So it does help with stimulating and really engaging the people much more than just having a phone call or a Zoom call. So these are some examples. Another example I want to give is, we recently had a paper on uh, taste liking, um, which means we wanted to investigate how we can create robot waiters uh, who would, for instance, engage people, you know, just like in restaurants when a customer is asking, they want to try a wine and so on. So we did some study. This was an in-lab study with uh, five different tastes and people tasting this and the robot facilitating this sort of setup. We compared it to a human facilitator. And we actually got uh, uh, listed uh, for the best paper awards of the IEEE Roman conference in August uh, about this. So I'm just highlighting this as, as a very different uh, applications, the spectrum of uh, using social or even humanoid, non-humanoid robots for different applications, the spectrum is very wide and is very rich uh, and really uh, still open for a lot of exploration and investigation. I mean, I, I think that's fascinating. And I, I love to zoom out and just thinking about how the work you're doing now represents the, the ultimate aim of, of technology. If we think back about writing as a technology was, was the ability to transport your, your ideas through space and time, send them into, into a different geography and into the future, you know, for other people to read in the future. And 
obviously cameras allowed us to transport our eyes and to, to see things at, from a distance you know, via the screen. And, and what you're doing is basically transporting the whole body. So you're, it's not just your thoughts uh, and, and, and your vision, but physically being able to be embodied in, a, in another location. It sounds fascinating. And I, and I people, people uh, I was watching recently the Elon Musk uh, presentation about Neuralink, and I'm sure his hidden aim around this is about uh, being able to have humanoid robots uh, on Mars linked via computer and acting out uh, for, for people uh, uh, operating machines remotely for, for that uh, transformation. I, th I think the whole area is fascinating. T turning to the work you're doing uh, around the uh, aging population, that, that, that's fascinating. Obviously, we, we worked uh, together on um, that project uh, around uh, dementia using the uh, facial EMG and uh, cognitive training. But tell me, tell me a little bit more about the work you're doing around um, keeping people healthy as they get older. Uh, so, um, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about the, the joint work we did with you, so as a starting point. Uh, so this was uh, initiated by the neuroscience researchers in Cambridge. Um, uh, and then, um, um, actually, uh, um, the idea was, uh, there is a lot of uh, um, need around dementia, so it's actually becoming a very prominent problem all around the world, both in developed uh, countries and even in other places uh, around the world, because obviously uh, we live longer now, and uh, due to this, there are different challenges in life, and uh, we would like to support people as much as possible uh, with enhancing their quality of life, so really trying to mitigate and not... Uh, live a longer but declined life, but really to try to engage as much as possible with their work life, but also in other aspects of life. So around this, um, uh, currently I have, uh, I would like to talk about two projects. So one is the European Union Working Age Project. So this is quite a large one, 4 million euro funded by uh, Horizon 2020, a European Union's uh, program, uh, with uh, eight different partners around Europe, so very large-scale project. And the idea here is really um, to try to come up with a solution um, for the working uh, people, age 50 plus, to enhance their lifestyle both at work, at home, and even in changing conditions like due to COVID nowadays, we're doing teleworking. So in different environments, in particular, we wanted to investigate uh, in different settings, like manufacturing is one of the contexts to investigate, then office environment, and now we also included teleworking environment. And in this project, it really covers all different aspects in terms of sensing the user, both in terms of ergonomics, so their posture, um, and then their gestures, uh, uh, sound, uh, audio, video, even physiological signals. So I really try to come up with a holistic uh, system and a solution to sense them um, continuously uh, in an unobtrusive way, and then also have uh, the uh, machine or computer side uh, via a, an intelligent character. So if they're using it on their phone, this could be a character that um, comes up with various suggestions based on all this sensing that's happening, but also considering the context they're in. So if it's manufacturing, things will be slightly different. If it's the uh, office environment, it will be different. So it's a very large-scale project, and we're still working on this with quite some progress. So, But this is one uh, uh, of the solutions, uh, and I really am excited about this project because of this holistic aspect of it. 
and it will be deployed in different countries as well. Um, so that's another aspect to really see whether there are differences because we have uh, partners from Italy, Germany, uh, uh, Greece, Spain, uh, UK, and so on. Uh, so the other project is the one uh, you also um, contributed to, um, and this will be presented as part of the International Conference on uh, Multimodal Interaction uh, at the end of this month. So there we looked at uh, particularly dementia, and this was a collaboration with, um, um, uh, between neuroscience researchers uh, in Cambridge, and we also uh, employed your MTech uh, FaceTech technology. Um, and the, the motivation for this was um, uh, particularly when people are prone to dementia, can we actually come up with some mitigation strategies? Obviously, the researchers in neuroscience, they know this very well. They've been working on this for years. And they know that uh, there are some uh, solutions. For instance, cognitive training is one of them. And they found that computerized uh, solutions are better than just doing some prescribed manual tasks. But even better, um, they did believe that virtual environments actually would engage the users much more because with computerized solutions, what happens is adherence is low. So after a while, people get bored and things are not really adaptive. So they just keep doing similar tasks. Perhaps they need to choose their difficulty level themselves, but it's not really personalizable and adaptive uh, solution. With virtual environments, and this is the project we came up with, and the idea was to actually combine different aspects. So having the uh, engagement in virtual environments, because with VR, it's much more immersive. So people really feel they're part of the environment. Again, this concept of being there. So even if it's virtual, because of the setup, they feel part of that environment and they're really being there. Uh, the second aspect was sensing the nonverbal behavior. In this case, the face is occluded, so the typical technologies of video analysis of facial expressions are not possible. But uh, with the face tech uh, uh, technology, uh, we have the EMG sensors, so these enable us to sense what's happening, particularly with the upper part of the face. Uh, and these sensors, they're inside the headset, so they're not uh, obtrusive, so you know, people actually don't feel it's an additional thing. And through those, uh, we could sense um, as they were interacting in different environments, but we also created the environment. In this case, the idea was to uh, let them exercise their uh, memory. So both episodic memory and working memory. So for working memory, we created a realistic uh, scenario like supermarket tasks, um, because obviously even when we get older, we are still going to engage with life and go to the supermarket or the museum. And when we go, we need to you know, remember what to buy and things like that. So this was the task there with different difficulty levels, number of items, and they could really engage in the environment. And for episodic memory, it was the museum environment. This was, again, about different items in the museum, uh, removing them, for instance, as part of the game, and then the person needs to remember uh, where the location of these items were and so on. So this was to engage different aspects of, of their memory. And we did conduct a study uh, first in the lab um, uh, to gather data from the people and create machine learning methodologies so that uh, this would enable adaptation automatically based on these models. And the second final study was to test this um, adaptive uh, uh, model uh, with the baseline model, which is non-adaptive, with the potential uh, target users. So obviously, they were not people prone to dementia because these things um, 
uh, ethically take uh, a long time to actually uh, even explore. So this was an initial study. So this, um, the number of people we tested on was not as high, but was provided uh, by the neuroscience department. And we did find that people actually in their ratings, this is subjective ratings, they rated much uh, more positively the one that's adaptive. And they also felt that it did enable them to use their potential much more. So this also relates to the flow theory, particularly used with games, which means you would like to have a setup where you will utilize as much as possible the full potential of the user without uh, really uh, forcing them or making things so difficult that they fall into an anxiety area. So it's uh, uh, the, the difficulty level is high enough to engage them, so they're not bored but not as high as to cause anxiety. So it's a, a, a very sort of a fine-tuned area that we need to get to throughout the whole game. And uh, this proposed solution from our side was really through effective computing methodologies using sensing from the user, and then based on that, predicting uh, their affective state and adapting and the difficulty levels based on that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, that that whole element, that whole area of adaptive training, I, I think is, is going to be the revolution that will impact huge areas of, of modern life. And this kind of research, I think, is just the beginnings of, of, of things that are going to be yeah, just, just normal in future. You know, the, the idea of having to either choose your own difficulty level or, or having it dictated by a person uh, in a face-to-face -face setting is... Um, yeah, it's going to be. It's going to seem so so old fashioned in future. Indeed, I want to add to that also because here we created you know an adaptive model based on a group of people. But the ideal situation would be the interfaces, the robots, or you know the technology we have adapts to the person as time goes by. So that's really the ultimate goal. Absolutely, yeah. So one of the big controversy areas within effective computing has been this issue around uh, modeling and the universal modeling versus uh, having uh, unique modeling based on that individual's responses. How do you think that applies to, to this work around uh, sort of physical interactions and cognitive interactions? So I think in many applications related to uh, effective computing, um, we needed a starting point. Obviously, this is a, a, a new field, relatively new. I mean, obviously, now it's maturing, has its own conference, people attending, like 350 or more people have its own journal. So the, the field has uh, matured to some extent, which is really nice. And more and more researchers are attracted to the field. But uh, we have to acknowledge that... Um, as particularly computer science and engineers, we needed a starting point. And the starting point was to try to see whether we can come up with generalized or generalizable models. So that was the starting point. But I think now we really uh, acknowledge the fact that we can generalize to some extent. So, you know, it's very user dependent, particularly now uh, in different fields related to artificial intelligence, we also see issues related to bias, which means now, uh, you know, we know that the technology created will be biased based on the data used. So if you're using only a, a certain population, like uh, I mentioned, this elderly uh, population, obviously, uh, the system we create will be biased towards that population. So we, need to, we really need to be aware what sort of data we are using for which purpose. And that really means we can't generalize for all the different contexts, for all the different um, 
target population in terms of age, uh, cultural background, ethnicity, gender, and so on. So we need more and more personalization. And uh, the generic models can still be used. Um, so obviously there are different data sets. And when we first started the research in effective computing area, there was not a lot of data. So now data is, uh, you know, plenty all around, um, really freely available sometimes, but sometimes, you know, companies acquiring it, they, they can even pay people like crowdsourcing technologies, people get paid for doing certain works and so on. But there's a lot of ethical issues around this, so we have to be aware of that. And there's a lot of ethical issues related to training models from such data and using them in different uh, applications and claiming it would work for every setting and for every target user group. So this is, uh, um, now we're really aware of this as well, and perhaps you saw, you attended the last Effective Computing Conference, and actually next year, um, in 2021, the theme of the Effective Computing Conference is really these ethical aspects, ethical effective computing. So as a field, we are really becoming more aware, and we are acknowledging actually the need to personalize, adapt, and take into account these aspects related to, to bias. Uh, I think this is also synchronously with other fields like computer vision and machine learning and artificial intelligence. They're also maturing to the extent that now we can discuss these aspects because we see that we can apply this in the real world, but now we really have to be careful. Uh, how do we apply these things and what do we claim? And we have to be really careful not to deceive the general population about the possibility and the promise of the technology we are creating. Absolutely. There's uh, one company that comes to mind uh, called HireVue who use computer vision to uh, help with employee screening and um, to try to find candidates who they feel will be suitable for, for a job. And that, that sort of thing really alarms me. In my role as a surgeon, I, I treat patients with facial disfigurement and um, or facial muscle disorders. And the, the, you know, imagining how patients could be um, pre-assigned into a certain category based on technology that was not trained uh, to take the, their specific issues into account is, is horrifying. Uh, indeed. I mean, this ties in with what I mentioned already. Um, we have to be really careful. Uh, and obviously, I think here the responsibility lies in many, many um, different levels uh, of contributors in the, in the field. So, you know, as researchers and academics, we have to be really openly discussing these things. And again, you saw during the Aki conference last year um, that we even have a, had a panel about this to really actually make it openly discussed and make the students aware because uh, the new generation PhD students and so on, they're not always aware of this because they're so into the technology and the coding aspect itself and so on. So this is one. Then uh, obviously at a societal level, uh, there is a lot of responsibility um, in terms of, you know, how the government also um, manages these things and uh, in terms of, you know, um, uh, enforcing certain uh, law-related aspects, um, even the uh, funding bodies like EPSRC, EU, um, and also the generic public as well, when they're watching something, when they're, uh, you know, seeing things on Facebook, Twitter, and so on. I think we have to be really mentioning this all the time to not believe everything that they see, but really try to uh, participate in what's happening, uh, you know, as uh, citizens in terms of having a voice and, and really um, enforcing certain things like, you know, investigating, 
participating, for instance, in, in like uh, science festivals, museums, really going and seeing and testing things for themselves before advocating that that's the ultimate solution. So I think it's really um, an, an area that we all need to contribute as much as possible. Uh, we can't just rely on a single body of, uh, uh, you know, people like only researchers, only universities, or only the government to do the task. So we all have to be very uh, diligent about this. Absolutely. What do you think would be the single biggest uh, improvement that could change the whole field and, and push things forward in terms of either technology or uh, regulation or uh, innovation? What, what single thing, you know, if you had a magic wand and you could wave it and say, let's change things uh, right now, what would be the thing that you think would be the most impactful? I think actually there's a danger in trying to think of a single thing. That's what I would say. Um, I mean, uh, of course, even students would like to know something like that, you know, a single answer, a single solution. Unfortunately, we don't have this. And I think what I would say is that the key is not a single uh, view or single solution, but the holistic approach. So we really have to consider all different aspects as much as possible, as long as possible, when we are creating things. Because if we only think, for instance, I just want to give the example of deep learning. You know, it, it came um, such in, in such a way that, wow, okay, it will er eradicate any other sort of uh, machine learning methodology and you can do anything with deep learning and so on. So it was really um, marketed, let's say, that way because of the very promising um, uh, results it showed for like object detection uh, and, and various other computer vision tasks. But then obviously we realized that for other problems, which we call like small data set problems, similar to the stuff that I mentioned, like dementia research that uh, we were talking about, or the working age project, we don't have such abundant data, millions and millions of videos and, and you know, we don't have such data to just say, yes, deep learning is the killer solution and it will work for everything. So this is just one example. So we have to be really aware that a single solution will not work for everything. This is similar to what I said about, uh, you know, effective computing models that need to be tailored and personalized and adapted. So that would be my take-home message. We don't really have, a, unfortunately, a single solution, a golden solution, or a golden tech or model or method that will solve all the problems for us. And what makes effective computing field for me interesting is that, yes, it's not a single, <laughs> single solution field. So you always have to take into account the people, because obviously we are creating things for them. Uh, the uh, variance and the spectrum within you know these uh, users and depending on the application so you have to take into account what is the problem uh, so who are going to be affected by this and how we can solve this problem then comes also um, this cross-disciplinary aspect so having really collaborative um, solutions with different fields as well and to me this is the beauty of it it's a very multidisciplinary field and uh, cannot be, you know, just solved with a single uh, method or single tech or a single uh, answer uh, to the research problems. And that's what I like about it. Well, collaboration is uh, something I'm very, very passionate about. So I think that, uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. That's, that is the way forward. These problems are way too complex for any single specialty to solve. 
Hatija, it's been fascinating talking to you uh, the, uh, today, and um, I really look forward to next year's conference. I think I think that uh, it should be um, again equally interesting as last year's, which which was really quite quite something. Um, same thing uh, that uh, readers can look to to find out about your work and and what you're doing. Uh, so I try to update my web page as much as possible, but now that I have a growing group, I'm hoping that we'll have a group uh, group page. <laughs> um, but for now, I would suggest uh, you can check my website, and uh, I also am quite active on Twitter, um, and uh, the publications are updated as well on my website, and uh, you know you can find me also on the Cambridge uh, Department of Computer Science and Technology website as well. That's what I would suggest for now. Perfect. Well, I'll put links to those uh, on the show notes of the uh, of the podcast and uh, on the on the blog. And uh, yeah, I, I really encourage people. I, I read some of your early papers, especially your, your review articles, uh, which were really really well written. And um, I would encourage anyone who's interested in this field to look at those, especially where you discuss around multimodal uh, signal analysis. Um, yeah, fantastic, Hadija. Thanks so much for your time and uh, yeah, look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you very much, Charles. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Emotional Lab. If you're enjoying it, please remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And do head over to the description of this episode and follow us on social media to be notified when a new episode is launching.